Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Today we're lucky enough to have with us Tony Morrow, who retired this summer after nearly 40 years covering the Supreme Court. Tony, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Wow. Um, so just uh, start. let's start at the beginning. How did you get started covering the Supreme Court? Well, I, uh, early in my uh, journalism career, I covered the courts in South Jersey, southern New Jersey, um, uh, in Camden, and also the Third Circuit and the and the uh, New Jersey Supreme Court. And my uh, editor thought I was doing a good job, and he said, you ought to go to law school. And I did for exactly four weeks <laughs> at uh, Rutgers Camden Law School. I enjoyed it, but I was doing it at the same time I was working full-time, and I just couldn't do both. Sure. Uh, but I kept up with the, the, the uh, court beat, and my editor got transferred down to Washington, and he said, if you can cover the New Jersey Supreme Court, you can cover the U.S. Supreme Court. So that's how it started, and that was almost exactly 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, so in uh, 1979. And so how has covering the U.S. Supreme Court changed, for better or for worse, <laughs> uh, during the past 40 years? Uh, in a lot of ways. Mostly, I think, better. When uh, I first got to the court, the Supreme Court press corps had, had it pretty easy. We would go, we would watch opinion announcements and watch the hearings, and then we'd go to the court cafeteria and have lunch, and a couple hours later we'd go back to our offices and write our stories, and uh, obviously that can't happen anymore. So, you know, we're now pre-writing uh, decision stories. There's a deadline every minute, and I, um, and I think we we do lose something by that because we it, it's, it can be too fast. The rest of it, I think it's 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 all good. Uh, there are fewer reporters who actually sort of reside at the Supreme Court than there used to be, but there are so many other methods of uh, disseminating information about the court. Scotus blog being the premier one of those. So I think overall the public is getting a whole lot more information about the Supreme Court than it used to. So are there any particular memories when you think back about covering the court that really stand out, whether you're talking about cases or confirmation hearings, oral arguments, retirements? <laughs> well, so, some of all of those. Uh, I'd say the most amazing uh, events that I covered were the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing. There was just so much electricity and anger in that hearing room. It was just unbelievable, and never, never seen anything like it since. The, the Clarence Thomas hearings were in 1991, so I think a lot of people, certainly I remember them um, quite well, but a, a lot of younger people may not remember them. They were, were even more intense, you think, than the Kavanaugh hearings last year? Well, certainly they were kind of in the same ballpark, that, uh, uh, but... Uh, in, in, in terms of intensity and and the awfulness of what, what was being accused, for, for both of them really, it just you would think this can't happen for the Supreme Court nominee to have this kind of uh, controversy. Uh, but there it was, and I'd say as far as cases go, Bush versus Gore was was the most incredible. Um, the idea that the Supreme Court, which is usually off to the side of things was now ground zero, and that was going to just decide who's going to be president. It was just, I never thought that that would ever happen. I remember I wrote a column saying, Supreme Court won't take up uh, 
Florida election dispute, you know, and I was totally wrong about that. Uh, but it was so uh, intense, you would come out of the su Supreme Court and there would be people just roaring at each other, just the both sides so angry. Uh, so that was that was a big one. And uh, you were the, the pioneer covering minority law clerk hiring by the justices. What prompted you to start paying attention to this issue? Well, that was when I was uh, covering the Supreme Court for USA Today. That was in 1998, and I one of the things I had learned uh, on the beat was how important law clerks really are to the whole Supreme Court, and yet they were nobody knew about them. They were uh, very uh, uh, under the radar, and I thought we really should take a look at these law clerks and who they are, why they're so powerful, how they get there. And then we decided in, to make a demographics study of it, just to see who who's getting this amazing opportunity to, to be a Supreme Court law clerk. It was a difficult story to write because uh, the Supreme Court does not have or give out information about the demographics of the clerks. Uh, so we had to... I had to go through it kind of one by one of each clerk that, uh, to see, you know, it's a sort of awkward to call somebody up and say, are you Hispanic, are you black? And We, we came up with the numbers and it was really shocking uh, at that point among the justices uh, who were sitting their entire, their entire tenure. There was a, only 1.8% of the clerks hired were African American, 1% Hispanic, Asian Americans 4.5% and women uh, were only one-fourth of the law clerks In at 1998. that time. 1998, wow. Yeah, and it, it was it was shocking and it did get a lot of reaction. There were some uh, protests in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, people got arrested over it. So I felt like it was an important, uh, important story to tell and uh, at least one justice told me it was uh, eye-opening and that it helped the justices and their feeder judges and the feeder law professors to be aware that there should be there should be more diversity. And uh, do you think the court has made progress? Uh, pretty slim. It's uh, I kind of redid the the survey uh, in 19, in uh, 2017 um, and found that uh, things have improved. The, the, the percentage of African Americans now is about 4%. Asian Americans gone to 9% and Hispanics, but Hispanics are still very, the numbers are very low. And now women take, uh, make up roughly a third of the law clerks. So there's still a lot to go and there's really, it's hard to understand why it's so difficult or why the numbers don't go up. I mean, there, and there are many factors, one of which is that uh, top tier, uh, minority students are going to have a lot of other opportunities. Uh, I remember w when I did the original study, people kept telling me about the African-American Harvard Law School student who got away, and it turned out... <laughs> Barack Obama? Yeah, Barack Obama, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he, made, he made out pretty well uh, uh, without being a clerk. Um, but there, get his bonus later. Yeah, right. But it's... Uh, uh, it, but there also seems to be a, a, feel, um, a feeling among the justices that they don't they don't reach out very much to to seek out uh, minority uh, clerks. Um, 
uh, the, I talked to a lot of professors and they said they had never heard a justice say, you know, you can do better than this, give me a more diverse palette of uh, potential clerks. Um, so there's there's some kind of a, dis, it, it just doesn't work for some reason and, and the numbers just don't. Uh, don't get very bigger. Uh, one, ex one exception, I would say, is that is Justice Kavanaugh, who actually on the D.C. Circuit, he 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 did reach out to a lot of mi uh, minority uh, student law student organizations, and uh, really did try to recruit them, and and he succeeded, and then he sent a lot of them to the to the Supreme Court itself. So he, even at the district court level, he helped boost the numbers. And sort of a related question sort of is the educational diversity, getting your law clerks from somewhere other than Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. Have you, been, have you tracked that at all? Have you, or have you, have you sort of, at least anecdotally, have you seen any changes in that among the justices? It, you know, Justice it, Thomas, for example. Right tends to hire from beyond those three law schools. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he probably is the, the single justice who uh, really has made a point of go, go, going beyond Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, and Chicago. Uh, uh, the rest of the justices still feel like, uh, oh, we, we, can't, we can't take a chance on somebody from a third-tier law school. Um, uh, which is, just seems ridiculous. Uh, it, uh, there are some great students in all, all kinds of schools. And also, the history of Supreme Court clerks, uh, you know, there were some judges, justices, uh, who would, you know, gladly recruit the son of a friend as a law clerk. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the Supreme Court building hasn't crumbled. Uh, uh, somehow they managed to to work out, and uh, uh, so I think I, I, again I don't understand really the, uh, the the reluctance of justices um, to to go out to go beyond Harvard and Yale. Speaking of law clerks, the Supreme Court law clerks finish at the Supreme Court and they get paid a huge bonus. Um, what what is the bonus now? Do you know? Is I it think it's it's hovering around four hundred thousand dollars, maybe maybe more, uh, and yeah, it is incredible. And that's another uh, factor that made made my diversity study important because if there are a few minorities being clerks, there are a few minorities who have that who have that you know the golden ticket that will help them you know finish. Their uh, law school debt and things like that. In addition to the bonuses, they are they are set up for top tier jobs and and just the idea that, that minority law clerks are not getting that opportunity was really uh, what what got me mo most interested in that issue. Sure, can't open the doors if you're not in the building. Yeah, absolutely. Are there are there other broader implications to paying law clerks? these kinds of bonuses? I, I think that it's just the fact that they uh, they come out of this 
uh, clerkship, and uh, well, a lot of them go on to law firms briefly, or they go into government service, and then more and more the justices are are recruiting law clerks who have had some legal experience before uh, coming there. Um, but again, it's just it's just an opportunity thing that that they're. Uh, I'm not sure they they deserve that kind of a a, a bonus, but the, but that's what the market uh, has uh, carried on. You know, the the market bears it, and so that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Do you think we're going to see cameras in the courtroom or live <laughs> audio anytime soon? Well, I've been beating the drums on that issue for. Uh, uh, the entire time I've yeah, covered the I court. appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to think, well, at least it, it'll happen before the turn of the century, and that's come and gone, and um, now I just hope it'll happen during my lifetime, and I'm not even sure that's, that's going to happen. There just seems to be this uh, resistance that won't go away. They, I th part of it is they the justices feel like they're the only institution left who that can say no, mm -hmm. and so they covet that, uh, and they decide, you know, um, uh, we don't want to mess up the, a good thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it uh, kind of attitude, and they feel like uh, introducing cameras and, and microphones into the Supreme Court for broadcasting purposes will mess up the whole um, system. It'll change the dynamics of oral arguments. And I don't, I don't buy that. States, states Supreme Courts have done this for decades without any, any problem. But I think they still, there's this feeling of exceptionalism too, that the, the Supreme Court is different from every other uh, court and they don't have to follow the rules that uh, anybody else did, and does. So. Uh, I really am not that optimistic uh, that it's going to happen anytime soon. It may perhaps baby steps like same day uh, audio, even that has, they tried it for a few years, but now they have, uh, they, they hardly ever do allow that. And maybe, uh, you know, simultaneous or live streaming would be would be great, but I don't. I think they're reluctant about that too. They're worried. I think they're worried about um, hecklers coming to the court and saying bad things. They also worry about the ju justices talking to each other on the bench and that that stuff would come out. Uh, they're just very skittish about the whole thing, and I, I, I don't know what we can do about it except the the opinion announcement is a summary and it's announced by the majority. The, the justice in the majority who wrote the opinion, and sometimes they they oversimplifies or they or they exaggerate uh, what a decision says, or they it's like the justice's only chance to have spin control. So they don't want the opinion announcement to stand as a proxy for the actual decision. So they don't want that uh, broadcast. They don't want to hear on the nightly news that uh, the opinion announcement uh, text um, that's the reason okay yeah <laughs> but I I don't buy that either so all right 
What advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out as a Supreme Court reporter? I've always given the advice that's uh, more and more uh, antiquated uh, as, as the days, years go by, but the advice is make the time to actually read the decision from start to finish. Uh, you never know what you're missing on the in the uh, footnote uh, 17 on p page 42. Uh, you really have to close the door and and read the opinion. Um, amazing things can be discovered when you when you look at the at the dissents. And in fact, I usually tell reporters read the dissent first, and yes. that, because then you're going to see what the, the the highlights of the of the majority. Um, but anyway, all of these the advice goes by the boards because you, you have to be on deadline. You have to get your story up about a decision in within 10 minutes, and it's uh, there's no time to read the whole thing. So uh, that's unfortunate. Tony Morrow, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for everything. happy to do it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.